Okay, so in 2007, I was diagnosed with cancer, and after chemotherapy and five years of going to see my doctor on a regular basis, um, after five years, one day my oncologist says to me, all right, you're cured. You're, you know, you can go on, you've graduated. But there's one thing, you know, I've been waiting to ask you about, and I wanted to wait until you were cured, and I'm thinking, what does this doctor want to say to me? He says, you know, I have an idea for a TV show. Oh, you got to be kidding me. Yeah, it was like only in L.A., right? Only in L.A. was your doctor pitch you a TV show. <laughs> oh, my show. God. So he says to me, there's a lot of funny things that happen in this office. No one would ever think cancer is funny, but, you know, here's some funny stories. So I thought about it. I thought, hey, this is a pretty good idea. And um, I hired some writers. We wrote a script. And we gave it to WME, who was representing us. They loved it. And they told us that um, in order to help sell it, we needed to attach ourselves to a big-time comedy producer. And the reason I'm telling the story today is because the guy we attached was none other than Paul Feig, our guest on the show today. And Paul loved the script. He really flipped out for it. He gave us one note, uh, which we changed. And then we went out to all the different networks around town, you know, HBO, Showtime, Netflix, TBS... TNT, Comedy Central, and uh, guess what? Oh, what? Everybody passed. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, come on. Yeah. every <laughs> No, uh, everybody passed on the show, um, but we got word from our agents that Vimeo, of all places, was launching a streaming service to compete with Netflix, and they were interested in our show. And we're all like, wow, this is amazing. And we go in there and pitch it, and they buy it in the room. So they say they're going to send us an offer letter, they're going to send us a deal, be on the lookout in the next couple of days, and uh, we're all so excited and so happy. And then literally three weeks later to the day, they went out of business. Wait, what? Yeah. So there you go. I guess this project has just been cursed. Oh my god. So I was really bummed out about it. I was feeling like a complete failure. And around that time, I had lunch with a friend of mine who's also a producer, and he says, dude, there's no reason for you to be upset. You got a script written. Paul Feig loved it. He attached himself as an executive producer and director, and someone bought it. Of course, that place went out of business, but they bought it. That is a hard thing to do what you did. That really changed my way of thinking about it. Sometimes things take a while to sell. I mean, The Queen's Gambit took 30 years or something. So right now it's just sitting in a drawer and hopefully it'll sell one day. So I guess it's a way of just never giving up and never surrendering. I'm Jack Hergeth. And I'm Stephen Kramer Glickman. And this is Never Surrender. The show where we sit down with the most successful people in the entertainment industry to talk about failure and how they pushed through it and never gave up. Because we've all failed. We've all had setbacks. Yeah, we've all questioned whether to keep going. But at some point, everybody struggles. Yeah. I mean, I've been let go from some of my favorite jobs. You and me both. We just hope that by listening to this podcast, it will help give you the strength to never surrender. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Well, then let's welcome our next guest because he really is one hell of a guy. He's a writer, a director, whose movies have grossed a billion dollars. Can you believe that? A billion dollars worldwide at the box office. He's the director of huge comedy films like Bridesmaids, Spy, The Heat, and the 2016 Ghostbusters reboot. And he's also the creator, writer, and executive producer of television shows like Freaks and Geeks and has directed award-winning shows like Arrested Development, The Office, Mad Men, and many more. You'd think a guy like this has never failed at anything. But surprisingly, he's had his share of disappointments. But you know what? He's never given up. He's never surrendered. This is Paul Feig. Mr. Paul Feig. Well, hello. Hello, fellas. Wow. Hello, Paul. So cool, How's it going? And, and everyone else here, they got an amazing group, a great fresh-faced team. I love it. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us. We're very honored and humbled to have you here to, with us today. I, I know, uh, Paul, that you started in stand-up. That was like yeah. kind of how your career started. And you were very young when you started? Yeah, I um, I fell in love with stand-up, I mean, when I was a kid and, uh, you know, loved George Carlin. and and But I really fell in love with Steve Martin. And that was like when I was like 13, I think, when he first kind of came on the scene and started hosting SNL. And uh, even before the album came out, and then when the first album came out, uh, Let's Get Small, that was like a, a, that was a big deal in the comedy world, and I was just a, a comedy aficionado back then, but nobody in my school knew um, that uh, he existed. And so I memorized the album and would then go to school and do the routines and pass them off as my own. Oh and God. and everybody thought I was a genius. Uh, and then Steve Martin became very famous and popular, and then they realized I was just a thief. Like, hey, Paul, there's this guy ripping off your material. Yeah, He's like, on what? TV. Let me what get my dad's lawyer on, on this. <laughs> <laughs> but but then there was also a show on TV at the time called Make Me Laugh, which oh, yeah. was hosted by Bobby Van. And um, Love that show. Yeah, it was great. And it, you know, if, if your audience doesn't know what it was, it was a, it was a game show in a very loose context or pretext that, that basically there'd be a, 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 a contestant would come out and they'd sit in this chair and then three comics on the show would come out and try to make them laugh. And they had like mm -hmm. a minute to make them laugh. But it was all just an excuse to do stand-up comedy. And there was a guy on the show named Mike Binder, the famous Mike Binder, who oh, yeah. went into be, you know, ended up being a great film director too. But he was a great stand-up comedian. And they would always go like, you know, uh, you know, Michigan's own, Detroit's own, and I'm from Detroit. So I was like, wait a minute, like he's famous and he's on TV doing stand-up and, and, you know, and he's from Detroit where I'm from. So that was the moment I was like, well, maybe I can do this. And so found out that there was a, a comedy club in our area called the Delta Lady, um, which was a, a biker bar. It was a biker bar in like a really bad part of Detroit. Oh my God. Yeah. And, um, but I like, I signed up for the open mic night. I called them up and got on the list and, but I, they said, I'm 15 years old. <laughs> They're like, well, you have to bring your parents to get in. Whoa. Wow. Yeah, so I dragged my parents down to this really crazy biker bar. But then there's a lot of like, you know, future stars there. Dave Coulier was performing. Oh, that wow. night. really? He had kind of become one of the regular guys there. Yeah, and he was. I remember he was really nice to me because you know took very kind to the 15 year old kid. And he's like, here's what we want to do and stuff, and you know, kind of gave me some advice. Wow. Yeah, and then I got up cool. and did it, and, and it, it was you know it was not good, but <laughs> but I got laughs. How did you feel like the first time you went up? Did you feel like it? it 
it went well the first time and then later than then trying to do it again and again. Well, you know what it was? It was just that. I mean, I was terrified to do it, but I was also excited to do it. Sure. And I remember that morning, like laying in bed going like, oh, my God, I'm under the covers and nobody can see me. But tonight I'll be in, on a stage and everyone will be looking at me. And it was just this like, oh my God. like a mind blowing idea. But then when I got up there and did my act, which was really dumb, it was, you know, when you're 15 years old, God only knows the jokes. What was your act that. like? It was all it kind of I mean, I was a big Johnny Carson fan at the mm-hmm. time. So like some of my punchlines were about New Jersey, you know, and I was from <laughs> Michigan. I didn't know New Jersey from anything. <laughs> And I could have easily made it a Detroit reference by saying Zug Island, which was like the big punchline in Detroit. But of course, that I went to New Jersey. It was some joke about like, well, when, when Godzilla is fighting this other monster and he kills the other monster, like, how do they get rid of that giant monster? Like, uh, I think they take him to New Jersey. And it's like, <laughs> and, and, you know, completely dumb. But I was getting laughs. And I realized, you know, in retrospect over the years, listening to that original tape, it's like, oh, no, they're clearly just laughing at me. <laughs> you know, but it is also I thought it was cute that a 15 year old kid was up doing it. Did you have a moment where you figured out like while you were on stage where you're like, oh, I'm I'm good at this. Like, was there like a tip off? No, I, I don't even know if I. I mean, I guess it, you kind of think you're good at it, but I just remember going like, "Oh my god, I'm getting laughs, and this feels great." Sure. Yeah, and I so that. I just kind of got off on that. And I remember like, you know, afterwards, we all took my parents, took me and a friend that we brought to Shakey's Pizza, and like saying like, "Oh, I have this future as a comedian and all that," you know. And then that was sort of the first time is sort of this amazing you know, cathartic moment. And then you get into the nuts and bolts of like, I got to come up with a new act. You know, it's, it's, I, suddenly I thought I have to, every time I go up, I had to have a new act. <laughs> I love it. Um, oh, now, uh, as you continued acting through, you know, through school, I know that you, uh, you were on, all sorts of different shows. You did an episode of Facts of Life. Is yes. that right? Yes. Yes. Wow. Correct. That must have been an extraordinarily interesting set to be in. I know you did Gary Shandling show as well, and yeah, some yeah. other. You you got to work with uh, some very interesting and fun people. No, I was really lucky. I mean, I, I got to. I mean, yeah, the Facts of Life was the first like real acting Hollywood job I got. Because I was a stand-up, I'd been doing stand-up professionally, and so I had like a five-year period from eighty-five to ninety, where, you know, it's such a, it's so hard to become a regular on a show. Yet, you, you know, a million auditions, and you have to go to the network, and you're competing with these other people, and you have to, you know, make the head of the network choose you. So when you finally get it, you're always like, oh my god, my life has changed. You know, I remember I, I, I was I was um, the first show I was a regular. I was uh, Dirty Dancing, the TV series, and I remember you know we were taping it, shooting it. It was a single camera thing, and the day we were going to premiere, I remember I was at Arby's. I used to at Arby's all the time in the in the in Van Nuys. I loved it, and uh, I remember sitting in Arby's, going like, "Well, this is the last time I'll ever be able to eat at Arby's because once the show goes out, I'm going to get mobbed, and you know it's going to be terrible. They'll probably tear my clothes off and all that." And then slowly you start to realize, "Oh yeah, you know, first of all, it's a miracle if a show takes off." Anyway, and then if you're the sixth or seventh lead, then no one knows who the hell you are. So, you know, I'd had that experience four separate times. Yeah. Uh, then on a show called Good Sports with Ryan O'Neill and Farrah Fawcett. Then the Louis show with Louis Anderson. And um, then the, J- the Jackie Thomas show with uh, that was Tom Arnold's show. Uh, when you when you got uh, cast on Sabrina the Teenage Witch, that was a that was a big show. Uh, and and I remember it being a big TV show at the time. And, yeah. Uh, you had Melissa jo- Joan Hart, and mm-hmm. you had uh, the uh, puppeteered robot cat. There was a lot of things happening yeah, on Nick that Bakai, show. Yeah, Nick Bakai, voiced by the amazing Nick oh, Bakai. Yes. Absolutely. Um, what was that experience like doing a show like that? Sure. So by the time um, Sabrina rolled around, 
I, I, I was already kind of going like, I don't know if acting, I don't know if I can take sort of not having the control. Because, you know, you'd, you'd be on a show, you think your life has changed, and the show gets canceled, then you're just back on the street. And, you, you know, you could save up some money for when it was on, but then you'd have a year when you wouldn't work, and just waiting for the phone to ring. So finally, after four, you know, shows falling apart, I had a hit. And so it's like, oh, thank God. So then you take your foot off the, the brake. And so what I did was I took all the money I'd made. I'd saved up about $35,000 from doing the show. And I was, I'd written this this low-budget independent feature that I could make for cheap, about four people showing up in a field on one day, natural lighting, all this. But, you know, it was back before digital. So you had to buy the film. So I had to buy like 30 – all my money went to buying 60-millimeter film and processing it. And – so I shoot this thing going like, okay, I'm going to come back the next season and, uh, you know, I'll restock the coffers and basically bankrupted my family, <laughs> you know, my wife and I. <sighs> and then as I'm in post-production, I get a call from the show. They're like, hey, um, we got some bad news. We just, we don't really know how to write for your character anymore. So we're going to cut it out, you know, but the good news is we might have you on for like one or two guest spots. It's like, oh, this is not good news. Oh, no. <gasps> how do you not just completely, you know, lose your mind? In terms of like, what do I do now? Obviously, you had some money set aside. You wanted to make this film. But at the same time, you're like, oh, I'm married. I have a wife. How, you know, how do we sort of move forward? How do we continue? I, I was like, I'm going to stake a claim. I had I'd rented an office and I was paying this office you know, rent to go there and write. So it just kind of like, all right, I'm out of the nest. I'm going to spend all my, my full-time job was trying to get this movie into film festivals. And I mean, that's all I did all day long was sending it out and contacting and, you know, all these places. And then that became my full-time job. Yeah. But we were running out of money. And I remember right, like towards the end of that year going like this, I guess this might be it. Like mm-hmm. I, I mean, and I was going, okay, I'll get a job at a bookstore. Cause I like, really like bookstores and I'll do that. And I remember the worst moment was, you know, my you know my wife was working hard, and she wanted a vacation. She wanted to go to Vancouver, so we took this one week vacation to Vancouver. But the whole time we're on vacation, I'm like, I don't know how to pay for this, and she was paying for it, but she didn't have that much oh, money. That's the worst the feeling. Yeah, and you're just trying to like try to enjoy let's yourself. Have a vacation, same, yeah. And yeah. I literally thought I was going to have a nervous breakdown on that. that yeah, vacation. no, no, I get that. And you painted yourself into a corner in some ways because, you, like, all the safety nets are gone. Yeah, and so you're you have this office, and every and people know that you are a like a strong writer and that you you know that you're a good writer yeah but nobody i mean yeah nobody really knew i mean no I, one my really writer knew friends that. Like, oh, friend isn't that it, nice that he wrote these scripts you know these these episodes of the tv show and they're like yeah these are good but it didn't register other than oh he's an actor and he wrote something that he can be in so how mm-hmm. how do you decide that it's time to write uh, freaks and geeks. Like, how do you make a jump like that? What happened was I got into a film festival that was called Flix Tour. So I submitted to that and they picked three filmmakers and the whole context of it was, okay, we're going to fly each of you into a different city in the Midwest. We're going to rent each of you cars. We're going to book you in all these different colleges. And so what will happen is every day you'll drive to a different college and show the movie and do a Q&A. Wow. Yeah. And then the next day you'll drive to the next place. You know, but these are all like really tiny colleges. Like sure. I've never heard of in my life. You know, these were not prestigious colleges. But it was. So you're just driving all over the country with these. With, yeah. With your driving around the country with my film and showing it, which was, you know, just to jump jump to a different thing. It was the greatest thing for a filmmaker to be held accountable at every single 
single screening of your movie wow. because then you're suddenly going like, oh my god, the things I thought were so important and the shots I thought I couldn't cut out of, you know, suddenly like you're going cut, cut, cut. Oh my god, I don't need to see him walk all the way from the car to the middle of the field. Yeah, but right. but the the genesis of Freaks and Geeks was. You know, I was going out on this tour, but I knew it didn't. You know, I was going to make a little bit of money, but at least it was something. So it kind of got my ego up of like, okay, the movie. Somebody's going to see the movie. Somebody liked it, but I always had to be writing. I was always writing something, and so for years I'd been wanting to do something about high school because I'd seen you know every. TV show and movie about high school, and it was always about like the dating lives of the cool kids. It always felt right, like to sure. me. And Beverly was a, Hills, nine hundred two one zero, totally. Sure. And they were all adults, you know. They were all in their twenties, clearly in their twenties, and they were just right. so cool with sex and and all this stuff. And I was like, <laughs> and I would watch these things. I was like, am I? Was I a freak? You know, because I was terrified of everything. I mean, I could. Right. I had two dates in high school. One was a two couple, more than me. Yeah, that, see, that, yeah, <laughs> mine were so disastrous. They can't be considered dates. <laughs> Um, yeah, and so I was just like, I got to do a show about the people I knew, like my nerdy friends, and we were friends with the Burnouts, and I should do some some kind of show like that. And it actually, at one point, had bought a new typewriter, this IBM Selectric that I loved, and just to use it, I started like, I would tell stories when I'd be out with friends, like from high school, and just humiliating stories, and they always got big laughs. So I was like, right. I can just write these stories down. So I started writing this book called School, and I remember I was like really into it and telling, writing stories about dodgeball and all these things. And then I told my dad one day, I said, like, Hey, I'm writing a book. He says, a book? What? What about? I said, well, just my experiences in school. And he says, well, who cares about your experiences in school? <laughs> and it was such a buzzkill. Oh. And I was like, you're right. And I just put it away and didn't I touch guess it. No wow. Yeah, totally. And yeah. I put it away for a couple of years. But then you know, when I was going to go out on the road, I know I was going to be driving around for a few weeks. And I was like, I got to write something. And so just the math of like, welcome to the dollhouse and and Felicity and and going like, hey, maybe I could write that show. And I was sitting in my, I remember, I'll tell you everything. I was sitting on the toilet, literally going like, I should write that show. And I want to write about, so it would be like the nerds and the burnouts. And I was like, well, freaks, we used to call them freaks. That, that you know, was the name in Detroit. And I was like, well, nerds and freaks. No, well, geeks. Well, we never called ourselves geeks, but it kind of rhymes. So, well, yeah, freaks and geeks. Maybe I'll, maybe I do that. And so I was out at dinner with my wife the night before I went on the road. And I said, I'm thinking about maybe writing a high school show about my, you know, life and called, you know, freaks and geeks. And I remember she just put her hand up like for a high five and she like gave me a high five and she goes, uh, that's what you should write. She goes, that sounds wow. like something you should write. That's cool. God, that's brilliant. Yeah, and I went out on the road and I wrote it. I was out for two weeks and wrote it. Those two weeks I was out, it just poured out of me. And a lot of it was, you know, the whole dodgeball game was right out of the chapter that I had written in that book about dodgeball. So Freaks and Geeks gets picked up. Yeah. Um, acclaimed by uh, everybody, uh, a well-loved show. And then after 18 episodes, if I'm correct, gets canceled. Yeah, actually it gets canceled after 12 episodes. Oh, okay. After 12 episodes air, but we made 18. No, it, it was really weird because, I mean, when the show got picked up, you know, I finished writing it and sent it to Judd, and he loved it, and he had this deal at DreamWorks, and so suddenly DreamWorks sold it to NBC, and suddenly I went from being a complete, you know, falling apart failure to like, oh, my God, I've got a show I created on NBC. Oh, my God. And we were in production, and then we got picked up, and we're, you know, doing this whole season. And it's just like my whole life changed. Remember, I was on a, I was on the tube in London 
with my notebook, and I remember just writing, I think I'm about to finally get everything I wanted out of life. Oh, wow. You know, and so it's just kind of like, yeah, and just going in and like, oh my God, I have a, you know, this show up and running and all that, you know, and it was coming out great and critically acclaimed, but the ratings were dropping and they were dropping every week and they were dropping huge. And on top of that, the network aired us for the first two weeks and they pulled it off for four weeks to air the world series. And then they brought us back for, I think another four weeks. Then they pull us off the air for two months uh, because they want to move us off of Saturday night because they, they think maybe the night's the issue, but then they put us back on Monday nights and they put us up against who wants to be a millionaire, which is the biggest show on TV at the time. Costs a fraction of what ours cost. So it's just going downhill, downhill, downhill. So you start to go like, Oh my God, I think I'm about to lose my show, Mm -hmm. but we just kept making it and kept making it. And then when we, we finished everything and we were posting the last six and number 12 aired and then my mom died like, oh my God. like oh my God. two days later. And so I'm just kind of rocked by that because it was completely unexpected. And how old was she? She was, uh, was 74, you know, oh was way God. too young. Yeah, exactly. And then two days later, they canceled the show. So I was like literally in a meeting with my parents' lawyers trying to figure out all the, you know, everything, you know, oh, their business. God. Yeah. And Judd calls me up just, just completely, you know, falling apart and saying, you know, it says like they canceled the show. And I was so exhausted from just making the show. And then my mom, there was just like, I think I had a moment of like, okay, like I was almost like, thank God, I can't take anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, but then it was like a few days after that, then it starts to slowly sink in. And then it becomes like the death of a bunch of people because you, you're yeah, going like, right. oh my God, I like all these characters are real people to me now. These are my family. And now they're all dead because you're like, now there's nothing we can do with them. And I had all these stories I wanted to write for them. Yeah, and you'd based this show on so many important parts of your life. Yeah, and it's a and weird... On, yeah, that's a weird Well, dynamic. it's a weird rejection almost because you're like, this is my life. Like, literally the public has said, we don't care about your take on the world and your life and what you went through. I mean, I was lucky enough to, you know, the first professional directing job I got after directing the finale of Freaks and Geeks was uh, two episodes of Arrested Development. God, it's such a weird thing. I, I've talked to actors before about this, about this feeling of I think it's called astronaut syndrome where mm-hmm. like you finally get to this heightened place that is bigger and it's more incredible than anything you've ever experienced in your life and yeah. doing a show like Freaks and Geeks it's your show you've created it you're in charge it's your baby yeah. and then suddenly you don't have it anymore and then you have to go back down to being a TV director which by the way is a huge deal but not being able to be at that position anymore. It does feel like a big. Yeah, how do I find oh, my was, way back to the moon? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 It was. It was a charmed. You weren't slumming. life. No, <laughs> totally. But once you've tasted like the astronaut, mm-hmm. the moon. It's like everything feels like a come down, weirdly. Yeah. And I was, and again, I was working with wonderful people. And the fact that I was had had been co-run a show that people, all the other writers and showrunners really liked. I even had, you know, I was a director who could actually go into the writer's room, who could have input, you know, and I got the respect of them. I wasn't just getting pushed around like sometimes a TV director can. Yeah. So I was living a charmed life that way, but I just felt miserable. So uh, you did... I am David and Uncompanied Minor, which uh, both didn't perform well at the at the box office. Yeah, and um, 
So where were you at at that point? Well, you know, when I did on Comedy Miners, it was like, okay, I, I did something with the independent world. Let's see what a studio movie's like. Because every, I always hear like, studio movies are nightmares and a director, blah, blah, blah. I was like, you know what? I got nothing to lose. Let's let's go for it. So I did the studio movie and I had a great time doing it, although I really hit a lot of rocks with it of the, the studio head kind of turning on the script when we were a week into production and oh shutting us down and making us rewrite and all this stuff. You know, but we got through it and I was, you know, I was as happy with the end products as I could be, despite all the meddling. It was basically and, Home Alone, but with a bunch of kids, but in a in airport. an airport, right? But right? it was based on a This American Life story, so it was actually sure. supposed to kind of have this second layer about divorce and children divorce and what makes a family, and that was all in the first draft. And then we got, got a it. week into production, he suddenly decided, well, I don't know if I want all that stuff in here because I'm a divorced father, and I think it makes divorced parents look bad. Oh, so oh, cut God. all that stuff out and just have kids romping around in an airport in a post 9-11 world. Oh, so, wow. Yes. Fun. I knew we were dead when I had my say in the marketing and I, I did this kind of sizzle reel and I said, like, just have it with them running around, you know, all the all our little action bits. So they kind of use that as a template. They show this thing. I'm sitting in a theater with all these kids and moms and it's and it's unspooling and it's just like kids running amok in an airport and like security guards chasing them and then the kids do something and the security guards all fall and they hurt themselves and all this mom behind she goes like, oh my. And I'm just like, oh boy, well, we're dead. And the movie just bombed. It just bombed horrendously. And so then I got thrown into what is called movie jail, uh, which is a very, very real place. <laughs> when your movie loses somebody money, then you go in. Yeah. So then- how, do you, how does one get out of movie jail? One generally doesn't. <laughs> uh, you have to just kind of power your way out of it. I was fortunate that I was directing, you know, on the office and all these really well-regarded shows. So my name was popping up all over the place. So like people going, Oh, I love that. Oh, Oh, your name was on that. So it was kind of helping me, but it's still like, I was up for diary of a wimpy kid, which I love that book. And I was like, well, like, I, come on, I got to be able to direct that. You yeah. know, I, I'm known for working with kids. Sure. And at the last minute, I, look, I was going to get it. And the last minute, the head of the studio was like, no, we don't want him. We want somebody else. Well, because of movie jail. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. That was the beginning of rock bottom of realizing I'm not going to dig out to do movies again. Because, like, if I can't get a kid's movie, then I'm really in bad shape. Mm-hmm. So wow. I was, you know, again, directing TV and enjoying it. But I remember I do I do the morning walk, this four-mile walk I do every morning. And I remember I would just my weird thing in my head I'd go like well I guess I'm just running down the clock and that became this thing in my head you're just gonna run down the clock you're gonna you know you'll direct TV and it's great you'll be on great shows but you're just not gonna get to do your own stuff so just kind of embrace it you know make the money that you make from directing TV which is good sure and just run down the clock and kind of think about what you'll do for vacations and all that but it was not a happy place for me sure and so in the middle of all this, I have a really good commercial agent, and I get offered this series of internet commercials for Macy's. And it's going to star all these people, Martha Stewart, Rachel Roy, Tommy Hilfiger, and Donald Trump. Oh, (laughs) nice. Oh, my God. Yes. And so I go off to New York, which I love, but I'm directing these internet commercials, and I'm just kind of going like... Oh, is this is this it? Like now it's not even the office. You know, I mean I'm doing other shows, but like there was just something so I mean, everybody was very nice on it and it was, you know, working with Martha Stewart was really interesting and Tommy Hilfiger and all these people. But it was honestly it was Trump that kind of bottomed me out <laughs> because he wasn't mean to me at all. I sure. mean, honestly, it was like all I was told, you know, is like 
He's got to get out. He doesn't want to be. You got to understand with Trump, he doesn't want to be anywhere. So you got to get him in. You got to get him out. Got to get him in. Get him out. And I'm already like a nervous enough director. Where I'm always. I'm trying so hard to keep everybody happy. Oh, no. That's my only thing I care about is like keeping the actors happy, keeping everybody happy. And so I'm like, okay, we're gonna set this thing up, and I'm literally gonna have it. Donald Trump's gonna walk through the door. I'm gonna have the cameras on him because it was kind of docu style. And we're gonna go like, and we're shooting. So he comes in with Melania, and, and I'm like, all right, Donald, we're all set to go. And he's like, whoa, whoa, hold on, I can get my makeup on and stuff. So all right, okay. so he goes, you know, but I'm already going like, see, I'm on time. So just remember that <laughs> I, it's not me holding you up. Yeah. So he went, and, you know, ten minutes later, he had his makeup on, and we go in, and this thing's in two parts. It's like a before and after. He's gonna save a kid's bake sale and help this little kid who can't put it together. Interesting. Some pretty good stuff, huh? Hey, what's your name? Timmy. That's good. That's a nice, firm handshake. Where's your team? Huh? In business, you need a team. Oh, have one. Look at your competition. They're all making a lot of money, and you're sitting here. So we're going to make you a winner. Do you want to be a winner? Yeah. Let's go to Macy's. We're going to suit them up properly. So he comes through, we do it, and we kind of shoot it in, um, in like, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes, get through this whole thing. And I'm like, Donald, we got it. You know, and it was like, you know, he'd been there for 45 minutes since he walked in. He's like, oh, my God, that's great. Paul, you're the greatest. This guy, look at what he did. Oh, my God. Thank you. Anytime you need, you know, anything, let me know. Let me know. It's like, whoa, Donald, actually, I'm sorry. Uh, we still have a second half we got to do. We have to reset the room and everything. He's like, what? <laughs> I was, Come on, man. I, I was supposed to be out of here an hour ago. And it's like, an hour ago? You got to here 45 minutes ago. Like, I'm not the master of time and space. So then he's kind of like... Like stewing, so I'm like, so I'm going into like, oh, so I'm getting all like, like kind of nervous and kind of like, okay, guys, hurry up, hurry up, hurry. So we're running around, and then so you kind of get it all set up. We get through the next part, and I'm going in my head like, okay, I'll just let just shoot his stuff. I'll shoot him out, and then we'll get all the other stuff we need. And so we shoot him out, and again, he's like, okay, great, well, th- oh yeah, thanks, and he can, takes off, and I just kind of have this weird bottom out moment where I'm just like, I like almost have like a nervous breakdown, a mini nervous breakdown where I'm just kind of like, okay, well, we got that. All right, well, we're done. We're done. And the added guys are going like, well, no, you got to shoot all the other stuff, you know? And it's like, oh, oh wait, what, what do we need? And I'm kind of like walking around in a haze and they're like, no, you need this. Okay. And so they're kind of like walking me through this thing. And I just, I don't know what it is. If it's just, he's got some weird negative energy about him that just sucks everything out of you or it was just me or what. But I was just like a, like a wreck. And so I remember just being back in the hotel, like, what am I doing? Like weird breakdown. I don't know why. And in the middle of all that, I get a phone call from my agent and going like, hey, that wedding movie that uh, Judd, you'd gone to the read through for him. Because I'd like three years earlier, I'd gone to a read through of the very first version of what would become Bridesmaids. But I was busy at the time. And so, you know, Judd wanted me to kind of shepherd it for a while, but it wasn't for sure. And we didn't know if it was going to happen. So it kind of fell apart. And then I called him later. He's like, no, it's dead. It's dead. So the agents say like, oh, no, that, that, that wedding movie is back. And I'm like, well, wait, what? I thought it was dead. No, they said, but there was another director on it, but then he fell out. And so I was like, oh, okay, well, but don't tell Judd that 
I want the job or anything because I don't want him. I don't want to be a charity case because even though I was kind of bottoming out, I, was like, I didn't want like a charity job. Yeah. For some weird reason, I needed it terribly. So I said, just put my name on a list with all your other directors and give it to him and see what happens. And the, like a half hour later, I got a call from him going, like, all right, Fig, we're going to do this movie. You know, it's the one that, you know, you were the reading for, but you got to get in there. You know, I want you to meet with Wig and make sure that she's cool with it. And then we're going to do all these rewrites and all that. And it was suddenly like, Oh my God, like, am I getting out of movie jail? Possibly. Somebody <laughs> opened the door to movie jail. And so I, you know, went on and did it. Oh my God. Wow, that's that is crazy. the most amazing story. It was wild. It oh was really my wild. God. And, and you then, can thank Donald Trump for all of that. I know, exactly, exactly. <laughs> when we come back, a lot more with Paul Feig. 32.5 million dollars after tax breaks after so. tax breaks right and uh it was shot where was it shot LA in here in oh, LA okay. right yep. and it, and it made uh 288 million dollars in worldwide mm-hmm. which is an extraordinary break out of movie jail. There's never been a break out of movie jail like that. It was I don't pretty believe. great. And I just wanted to ask a quick question. Um when you're directing bridesmaids you know, still feeling like you're in movie jail. Is is there a lot of pressure on yourself to, yeah. as you're directing this film? Oh yeah, I, I felt so much pressure on that. You know, and you try to you try to separate it out because when you're in the moment, it's just about like making the best thing and having fun and coming up with jokes and figuring it out. So in the moment, it was always fun, but it was like at night, you know, trying to sleep. And you're just like, it's not going to do it. You know, like, I hope we didn't fuck that up. And then every as it's going well, then you're like, okay, today's the day I'm going to fuck it up. You're always like, but that's like, every time you direct a movie, that's that feeling of like, today's the day I'm going to screw everything up. Right. You know, and, but it's what drives you weirdly. It's that fear. But yeah, it yeah. it's in there. And the thing with though, when we were making it, it was terrifying because I always I always refer to it as strike three. I kept saying, mm-hmm. This is I'm making strike three, right? This is gonna either go one or two ways. And we knew we were doing something really good because all the every the talent involved was so good. Right. But when we were about to come out, we were tracking really poorly, and the ad campaign was just okay because they kind of the commercials they couldn't figure out if they're going to sell it like a comedy or like a romantic comedy, and so they leaned in a little more. You know, every ad had Melissa burping and saying, "I don't know which end that came out of," which on its own, you know, we were selling all these mean articles were getting written about like Paul Feig made a movie where he's just making fun of you know plus size women. And I was like, "No, that's not. You haven't seen the movie. What are you talking about? You know, don't judge it on that one thing." Yeah. And then. We were told 
you know, uh, that opening weekend we had to make $20 million. If we didn't make $20 million, the movie would be considered a failure because sure. we weren't making wow. enough money. Of course. And so we were tracking to make $13 million. And I got a call Friday morning from my agent after they did midnight screenings that just did okay because it's a wedding movie. <laughs> Nobody yeah. knows. So they're like, well, the movie just did okay last night. And so we they, that led their for predictions to be like 13. Says, I'm sorry, it's going to be 13. And you're just like, Oh my God! So I remember, again, I always get all the bad news when I'm sitting on the toilet. I remember, like, I was sitting on the toilet when I like, got that call, and I'm just sitting there, like, not being able to get off the off the toilet, going like, "Oh my God, fuck!" You know, like, strike three, strike three comes true, and on top of it. I knew all these female writers who were inspired by the fact that we had this female cast and they were out pitching ideas around the town and the town was saying to them, we got to wait and see how Bridesmaids does. does. Oh, oh, wow. So then you're like, well, what the fuck? So if I single-handedly will kill movies for women for the rest of eternity. (laughs) So just like completely bottoming out that day. But then throughout the day, like at a call, like the agent, like, well, okay, it's looking more like 15 million. It's like, okay. And then, like, late afternoon, it's like, well, I mean, the, uh, the matinees did okay. It looked like 17 million. So I was like, well, this is kind of going up. Mm-hmm. So I called Melissa and said, you know, the Melissa and Ben who live in my neighborhood, said, like, come on over for dinner and let's just, you know, commiserate or just be together. And, uh, and it was, we're at dinner. They're calling, like, you know, it's actually looking like 19. Then I got the call, like, it's looking like 20. And then, wow. then, like, a few minutes later, like, actually, they're predicting 22. Then it was going to be 24, and we're just like, holy shit. And so it's like, get in the car, everybody. So we all <laughs> jump in the car, and we drive to the Arclight and go, and it's walk into this theater, and it's packed, and the place oh, is rocking. So amazing. Yeah, and then it was just like, oh. that was the greatest, because you're like, oh, thank God. I didn't ruin movies for women, and I think I've avoided strike three. Right. I'm out yeah. of movie jail forever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, now I've made a lot of movies, and they've, you know, a bunch of them have done really well, which is great. And you always go like, oh, well, I guess the fear is going to go away now. Now at least I'll lose that fear of failure or just of like everything's going to fall apart and just go, okay, now I can kind of settle in. And it never goes away and it just gets worse and worse. Mm -hmm. And you're so driven by the fear and you're always just like – Oh no! This one's gonna, you know, be the one that takes me down. Right. Which is why Ghostbusters was such a weird experience for me. I jump on Twitter and write my infamous tweet of like, "I'm gonna reboot Ghostbusters with an all-female cast." That's who I'm gonna call. And I hit send, and like, who wouldn't be excited about this? Because I'd had nothing but a great relationship with the internet because right. of Freaks and Geeks and all my other movies, and you know, it's been nothing but positive. So. I just go, go like, oh, this would be fun. I, what a fun time. I'm going to get all these fun <laughs> tweets back. And the, the, the tweets start coming in, and they're really fun. And everybody's like, yeah, yeah, I was excited, and these women are excited, and guys are excited, and Ghostbusters fans are excited. And I go to bed that night like, this is the greatest thing. And then I wake up the next morning and check my Twitter feed, and it's like, oh, my God. It just it, the story had gone wider and gone mm-hmm. through all the you know the geek sites and through Reddit and 4chan and all those places and all of a sudden my feed turned into the ugliest place oh, no. I'd ever seen in my life oh, that my threw me back into getting bullied in the locker room. Yeah, sure, yeah, I was going to ask you that. Yeah. I mean, suddenly it's like every bully that I'd ever escaped was in my phone, was and screaming at me. And there's thousands of them. Yeah. Oh, my God. And, and they don't stop. They no, don't stop. And they're telling, they're hoping that I die. They're hoping that Katie Dippel dies. I mean, they're literally they're wishing oh. death upon us. You know, and you're just like, 
I'm back in high school. And that's, I just, it, and it just dogged me for, for two years. Oh my God. How did you deal with that? Well, at first you try to convince yourself you're amused by it because there's nothing you can do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we're moving forward and the thing's happening. So I, I kind of tried to make it funny to myself, but it's still like, you know, I was addicted to Twitter and just like, oh my God, I'm just getting punched in the face constantly. You know, and occasionally there'd be nice things in there. So you're like, oh, I'll look for the next nice one. I'm like, oh, 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 and you punch, 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 more, oh, more yeah. ugly stuff. So the first year we're going all through production and I'm not engaging with them at all. I'm not saying anything. And I'm posting pictures because I know every time we're shooting outside, somebody's going to take a cell phone picture. So I'm like managing where, we, you know, let, let's sneak out a, the proton pack. Let's sneak out the, the the uniforms. And so it was really fun. There was this whole cat and mouse with the with the internet. And so I that got me through it because it was fun. And we had fun, tons of fun making the movie you know, and all that. So I go on vacation, and when we wrap, and my editor's putting together the first assembly, and we go to Italy to my, you know, I love Capri. is my favorite place in the world. So we go to my favorite restaurant, which is on a, up on a sea cliff and overlooking the Mediterranean. It's gorgeous. And so I have some wine, and my wife goes to the bathroom, and I'm like, let me just look on Twitter. And I look on Twitter, and there's these two guys that were just dogging me, like, I mean, from day one, and just saying the most horrendous shit about my cast, about me, and about Katie and everybody. And just in that wine-fueled moment, I was like, you know what? Fuck this guy. (laughs) You know? Like, I'm going to fire back at this asshole. And I fire back at him. You know, he only only has 96 followers. Oh, fuck that guy. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And... I hit him with something, and then the other guy writes me back, and I, fuck you, and I, I do this whole thing against them, and I'm like, you know, so my wife comes back in the bathroom, and I'm sitting there like the cat that ate the canary, and she's like, what? I said, like, I feel so good. I just fucking took down these two guys <laughs> who've been up my ass for a year. And she goes like, should you have done that? <laughs> I said, yes, of course. I feel great. And then, like, I go back to the hotel, and then I, I get, like, an email from Judd, like, you really shouldn't have done that. Like, you know, you should just ignore these guys. I said, I, I've been ignoring these guys for a year, you know, and he's like, well, just block them. I said, I don't want to block them because I'm democratic and I want to make sure that I hear from everybody, oh, no. everyone's <laughs> voice. I hear everyone's opinion. I'm going to take it all in. And then I realized the next day, oh, fuck, I should not have done that. Because the minute you fire back at one troll, you are the enemy. (laughs) And suddenly I was the asshole. How dare you? So then, you know, it was kind of game over and we were open game. You know, so look, and the movie came out and it, you know, it just did okay. It didn't do what it was supposed to do. But I am very proud of it. And the denouement of that story was... You know, a year later, uh, we got nominated for Best Feature Film at the Nickelodeon Kids' Choice Awards, and we ended up winning and beating Rogue One and Captain America. Oh, my God. And so, you know, for all the – I've been told for, you know, three years, thanks for ruining my my childhood, it was like, well, guess what? Actually, I think maybe we kind of helped other childhoods of actual children. (laughs) So (laughs) so it was a nice thing. So, you you know, so it it, it does – you know, it did finally kind of come around. I've noticed on your Twitter feed that there are a lot of fans out there who are sending you, like – Ghostbusters-inspired art and yeah. other things like that. So that's got to be oh, a bit of a um, feeling of redemption that, hey, you know, there are people out there who, who do like this movie, who do care about it, yeah. who are inspired by it. Well, the best thing about it has been being contacted by so many girls and young women and women in general who say, you know, look, the movie's about pseudoscience, but they were still scientists and they were doing science-based you know, things. 
so many women reaching out saying like, if I had this movie when I was a kid, I would have been a scientist by now. I would have been an engineer by now, you know, and girls being inspired to go into science and to learn about it. And that's where you go. That's the power that we can have with this. And that's where, you know, for whatever the trolls who don't want women in their movies, you know, or minorities in their movies or, or anything like that. You go like it's representation that matters, and you have to show this on, on the screen. You, you know, the the world is a changing place. The demographics of, the, of this world are changing. I mean, there's always been women have always been more than half the population of the world, and yet for some reason they're not allowed to have their own. You know, either have their own movies or to be in the movies that normally had guys in it. Like, well, you why are, is you're that? Such, right. You're such an advocate for women. Keep, you keep putting people in in their best possible. Glow. You know, you know, that's what it feels like. Well, I appreciate that. I, honestly, I always look when, like, you know, sometimes people in my things will, will be very thankful. And it's like, I wouldn't, it's not, this is not selfless. I wouldn't have hired you if I didn't think you were awesome. Right. You know, I mean, totally. like Kate McKinnon, you know, holy shit. <laughs> you know, yeah. just the fact that she, you know, look, she already had her, her big showcase being on SNL, but. Right. Her being in Ghostbusters you know, just made so many more people aware of her, and now she's the superstar. And Leslie Jones is blown oh, yeah, up gigantic huge stuff for Leslie Jones. Yeah, and it's but it is just just finding the best best people, and then they shine. Uh, I I really wanted to ask you about this. Your motivation as a as a creator and as a, a writer. I don't know if this is how it was for you, but after your mother passed away, mm-hmm. did your motivation change as far as like why you were trying to be who you are? Because without without her around, like does that kind of change your dynamic of what you you know what you're trying to do? I think so. I mean, it was definitely definitely part of it, but I've always been very very driven. I've always been crazy ambitious and I've always been very competitive too not sports wise but just like if I see somebody else has done something had a success is like oh my god I I need to do something similar or I need to have that level of success which sure. is a petty thing to have but also I think you almost can't make it in the business if you don't have some element of that you yeah. just have to be you have to be driven, you know, and however that manifests itself, whether it's through being competitive, whether it's just being ambitious, whatever it is, you have to be pushing forward. And so definitely my mom, you know, I wanted to, because she was such a believer in me and pushed me to do so much stuff in a good way, you know, it's just supportive in, in that way, that it definitely felt like a responsibility to try to make it. But it was also this weird thing of like, oh, am I going to make it? And she's not going to know. Right. And my father just had no idea. He did, didn't understand the business at all. <laughs> I mean, when I made I Am David, and, you know, I was away in Bulgaria for six months and I finally came back and we did cut it like a, a teaser trailer for it. And my wife went and showed it to him and he's like, I mean, he was away for six months in, for that. It's not even a movie. It's only like two minutes long. It's like, oh, you, do you really not fucking understand the idea of a trailer? <laughs> oh, my oh my God. God really? So yeah. So it's like, oh my it's, it's God. like, where's mom? Where's mom? The person who understands oh, 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 oh. this. Two minute movie. Yeah, exactly. Oh what God. a production it was. Oh. Well, if I can just end with, with the words of my, my father, uh, who told me his favorite thing was Winston Churchill made a speech once. I don't even know if this is true or not, but. My dad said it was true, where he just got up in front of some graduating class and he said his speech was never, 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 never give up. And he walked off stage. Really? And whether it's true or not, that's always been my mantra of like, you know what? Don't give up, man, because you don't know what's going to happen next. And right when you think you're in the toilet, then an idea comes or the phone rings or something hits you or somebody shows up. And it's like, you know what? 
tomorrow's another day. You know, I, I look at life sort of like a, a, an Etch-a-Sketch where you do all this stuff and you go like, well, that drawing's weird. And then you just pick it up and shake it over your head and put it back down <laughs> and it's all clear again. And I always feel sure. like a good night's sleep is like shaking an Etch-a-Sketch. And you're like, all right, the next morning I'm going to wake up with more energy than I had when I went to bed. And I can probably solve something. And if I can't, I'll go to bed again the next night and I'll eventually figure it out. Right. I love it. Well, thanks again for having us, buddy. This was amazing. Yes, thank you, thank Paul. You. We're very honored Jack, having you. Steven, you guys are the greatest. Thank you so much. Never Surrender is produced by Western Sound. Executive producers are Jack Hergoth, Stephen Kramer Glickman, and Ben Adair. Producers are Sabrina Fang and Cameron Kell. Music by Hannes Brown. On social media, you can check us out on Instagram at NeverSurrenderPod, on Twitter at SurrenderPod, and on Facebook at NeverSurrenderPodcast. You can also email us at NeverSurrenderPodcast at gmail.com to share your own stories about how you struggled, failed, and ultimately never surrendered. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 